This episode of Echoes in the Bones is brought to you by the Institute of Cultural Policy and Innovation, ICPI. ICPI, providing services in business development and coaching. ICPI, leaders in online training in event planning and intellectual property. Visit our website today at www.icpi-ja.com. Welcome to another episode of Echoes in the Bones. It's the podcast where we look at technology, entrepreneurship, and culture. And we have a very special guest. This time around, Shadow, the music artist. And he's a serious creative who is into technology and entrepreneurship and has some exciting news for me. Shadow, welcome to Echoes in the Bones. Hey, it's a very big pleasure to be here, Dennis. I really appreciate you inviting me here. All right. So tell us about Shadow. Uh... All right. So me, I'm a uh, music artist based in Dallas, Texas, uh, born and raised there. I've been doing music for over 20 years. I'm a saxophonist. I'm a music artist, and I am a music NFT creator that um, uh, really big into entrepreneurship and technology. It's what I do. And um, I'm really glad to, uh, to share more about me and everything that I have going on today. All right. Tell us about your early training and what kind of a music that you, you specialize in. Okay. Uh, my early training... My very first time playing the saxophone was uh, a little bit before high school, and I just used to listen to records. I had uh, a teacher who was a he was a jazz saxophonist. I used to go to his house, and that's how he taught me. It was informal training, but I believe it was the best training. He just taught me to listen to the record and try to catch the, the notes on the record, and so he you know slow the record down. To half speed, you know, try to just copy it. He didn't teach me about scales or anything like that. His first lesson was listen to what the greats are doing and try to copy it, just like how a baby talks, learns yeah. to talk. So after that, I got formal training uh, when I got to high school with the music instructor. Uh, and that's when I started learning about scales and how to actually write the music on paper and stuff like that. Then um, I studied music performance and music education first. And then I did, uh, I got uh, degrees in uh, uh, recording technology, basically how to run a music studio and uh, music production later on. And uh, that's my, like, my formal background with music. The business side of things was just me being uh, fed up with how the industry goes because I did all the traditional routes trying to just uh, be in the, uh, uh, the industry, how everybody else does it. I used to work for, uh, I had a short internship with uh, Tom Jordan's radio station, Radio One. And, you know, it was a lot of just... Uh, politics, corporate politics. And after 
uh, like before that, I was I was uh, actually had a job playing for the United States Army Band. I was a saxophone player for the United States Army Band, and you know it was a great opportunity. But as you can imagine, there's limits to what you can do. You mm-hmm. can't really be your own man working for any type of government. And so after, you know, getting the chance to travel the world, I got to see uh, Korea. I got to see Japan, the Philippines, East Coast of the United States, the West Coast of the United States. Um, and I wanted more. And so uh, I set out to be an uh, independent artist, set up my own uh, independent music business. And the rest is history. The rest is history. It had to go through all the ups and downs of uh, entrepreneurship, tried and failed a bunch of times, uh, experienced what it's like to be a starving artist, you know, and eventually started to figure things out and just how to get down to the, the meat and potatoes, down to the bone of what it takes to actually be a success as an independent music artist and it's really like you have to have really strong uh, business acumen. You got to be really self-aware with yourself uh, and and brave, courageous, <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. All right. So you were in the the United States Army band. So I guess you played a variety of stuff. But tell us what 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 kind of music? Uh, I want to get into the, the the business side, but I just want to know what kind of music you prefer to 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 perform as an artist i prefer jazz most of all but after being around so many different cultures i like all types of music you'll find uh like i said i was in japan so i learned a lot of the japanese uh flavor of the chords and how they use the little you know, dee, 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 dee. you know, you know, like all those different pieces of the music that of their culture uh, influenced me. So I will stack that on top of jazz and you will find uh, R&B uh, flavor inside of that. And you'll find a lot of hip hop flavor inside of that. So um, if you take those three and mix them together, most of the time, that's what my sound sounds like. So I love playing jazz, love playing R&B music, and I love the hip-hop music because, as we know, the hip-hop music comes from, you know, our culture as as melanated peoples, the original peoples of the planet. Hip-hop is infused with our culture. And so I, I, I believe that I have creative rights to that, that, that music since that's part of my heritage. So I'll be deep inside of that. You know, I, I love the Caribbean vibes. I love the, uh, you know, the Afrobeat, the soca, all the different African vibes too. So you'll find a lot of those basic flavors inside of the music that I like to play. I, I call it many styles, one beat. It's all from Africa. Uh, so it's many styles, one beat. And then sometimes when we hear conversations trying to pit the different genres against each other and saying, hey, well, Jama- a lot of Jamaicans will tell you that hip hop was influenced by Jamaican music, which is a fact. But sometimes Jamaicans don't 
remember that we were influenced, our music was influenced by American music, which was uh, American R&B, jump blues, jazz, and also Afro-Caribbean music. So we look at it one way, but we don't look at it the other way. And basically, the, my convert argument is that it's all one music and we are all influencing each other because we have one root. What's, what's your opinion on that? I totally agree. I like to, I like to say that, you know, when Jamaicans say they created it, did Americans say they created it, and you got this group of people, to me, totally, it's one, it's one root. And I think with the, the colonization that goes on over time, we've become really segmented and separated through the institutions of the, you know, the elites and the powers that be, they real, they real smart and they got real efficient with, with separating us. I want to say it's more like the indigenous people's music, all these different styles, because you look all over the planet, look all over the planet. Let's be real. You're going to see this skin tone right here. The, the most of the planet, you go to, you go to the Egypt, you go to, you go to South Asia, the Sri Lankans, the Indians, China, Japan, Philippines, Everywhere. America, Jamaica, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, North America, everywhere, Australia, Oceania, Melanesia, everywhere you're going to see something like this, you know? And to me, that's all one planet. This is one planet. So yes, it's one sound, it's one root, it's one bone. So we have been conditioned to think that we are all in these little pieces, we're separated, but not really, not really. And I think it's, so it's important to have a little bit of tribalism because each of us in these little pockets of the globe have our own spin on things. So the variety is important. That's very important and it's needed. But at the same time, I think you shouldn't uh, make that something that makes you up in arms against somebody else's style and what they claim to. We can all just we don't work together and respect each other's originality and share a little bit. That's what I experienced when I traveled uh, a lot of these places uh, like Korea, like, man, I'm telling you, brother, the Koreas, I call them the black folk of Asia because they, man, they get, they so soulful, right, with how they see, how they pick up our culture and emulate it. Sing, they sing the R&B songs good. Them girls be singing over there. The brothers, they be rapping. The Korean dudes be rapping. The Korean musicians, they learn from, uh, I bet many musicians in Korea they learned from, from Berkeley, uh, the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, which is full of African-American musicians as instructors who are deep in the roots in the history of our culture. They learned it from us, and they take it back, and they celebrate it. So it's like, if, that, if that's the case, then we shouldn't be fighting over who's right. We should just continue to share and respect each other's traditions, whether you're from Jamaica or the States or, or Africa, respect each other's traditions, 
but also celebrate the individuality and the variety and just swap, trade. Say, oh, this is cool, man. I like this. Listen to this. Look how I do it. Da, da, da. Oh, that's nice. Cool. Okay. Let me try. Ooh. Uh, uh, uh. You know, some bar barley flow. All right, cool. All right. Hey, James Brown. Dig it, man. Let's get on that. Oh, okay. Bob Marley, James Brown. That's a <laughs> hey, bow, gunpowder together. Boom. Let's do that, boy. Wonderful. All right. You mentioned that you started your own business and you're an independent artist. Tell us some of the difficulties you face in this very competitive and kind of restrictive music industry, especially in, in, in the United States. Give me some of your experience there. Man, where do I start? Number one, there's really rampant gatekeeping. The system that's currently in place, I would say the biggest roadblock for any independent artist of any culture, of any style of music, is the gatekeeping. They try to make it hard for you to enter the market uh, from from a point of entry that you can afford. Everything has a, a high price. Like, hey, if you want uh, if you want to have your stuff recorded, it's way up here because they're used to dealing with uh, recording industry budgets, right? If you want to have your stuff marketed, the budget's way up here because they're used to dealing with uh, record label budgets. If you want to have somebody uh, rate your music, oh, it's heavily influenced and corrupt. They're not going to give you an honest answer, even if you pay them. They say, yeah, we'll, we'll co-sign your stuff, but it's going to cost you this price. you know. And then once they co-sign your stuff, you pay them all this money up front. And they promise you all these promises. They gatekeep your your material, and a lot of times when they put your stuff on their magazine or whatever publication or authority or tastemaker that they say they are, they you, they put it up. You pay them the money, and it, the results is bad. So it's heavy gatekeeping um, to get your stuff played on the radio. Budgets way up here. They do that on purpose because they want to smash the little guy. They want to kill that little guy. They don't want any competition. They want to keep everything way up here. So uh, the challenge is uh, that's why you have to have really good, uh, strong entrepreneurship and bravery. The challenge is how to be creative in getting your stuff produced, uh, and have the quality still there. So you have to learn a lot of different uh, disciplines on your own in the beginning uh, to have your own music business. So you have to learn how to do the, the artwork yourself. You have to learn how to do the recording yourself a lot of times. The, the record has to be professionally mixed. Uh, you have to learn how to mix yourself. Uh, or if you can't find... If you can't mix yourself, find someone who has decent uh, prices, which uh, you can find through services, uh, platforms like Fiverr.com. You can find uh, 
freelancers who offer individual services. But then once you find the freelancers, you have to you have to do a lot of work to to verify that their work is good. You got to ask for uh, demos. You got to do this, do that. Um, you got to do a lot of groundwork. Then, you know, so that's mixing. Mastery, you have to find solutions to master your record. So the cell levels are uh, proficient and effective and competitive with what's out on the radio. So for uh, solutions for mastery, because once again, to get your album mastered, you got to pay the gatekeepers a high amount of money if you want quality masters from a, a professor or a professional uh, mastery engineer. You have to pay them hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars, just to master the record that you've mm -hmm. already finished, right? So uh, you have to do the same thing with the mastery. You can find freelancers or uh, freelancing websites like Upwork, and Fiverr.com. Uh, you also can do platforms like uh, uh, eMaster, which is uh, a website you can go to. And they have uh, artificial intelligence, which is a technology. You can send them your song, you email the song, or you upload the song. And they have an artificial intelligence robot that will master the song for you. And but it's a small, it's a much cheaper fee. It's still uh, a good fee to do that. But these are ways that you can, you know, you can get around some of the gatekeeping. So, so I talked about, you know, recording, mixing, mastering, artwork. Uh, now you have to figure out how to market yourself effectively. So a lot of that is gatekeep. So you have to figure out ways like social media marketing. Once again, that's something that is heavily gatekeeped. The industry has infiltrated social media marketing. Social media marketing, if to, if to have an expert do that for you, up front, they want at least $1,000 before they even start marketing, you're running ads for you, right? Running Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Twitter ads, uh, TikTok ads. They want, they say, give me $1,000 at least up front and you have to have faith that I'll do my job. And by the way, I'm not going to spend my money for your ads. I'm going to spend your money. So on top of that $1,000 that I that you just gave me, now you have to come up with another $1,000 so that I can spend all of your money on ads. Now, to a small guy, that's a big mountain to, to climb. And that's been designed by the industry to make it harder for you as independent artists. So we got to be smart and we have to think of other ways to market, you know? That was an amazing description of the problems within the, the music industry for independent artists and also some of the solutions. That was brilliant. Um, I, I understood clearly so if I wasn't if, if I wasn't a, a, a part of the industry and understood what you were talking about, uh, after that explanation, I was I was clear as to not only the issues in terms of problems but some of the solutions. But let me go back to the the social media marketing thing because you know you mentioned that even with Facebook and uh, Twitter and all of these platforms, there's a lot of gatekeeping because one time you could have 
organically grow on these platforms. Now, the algorithms are, are set that you won't go anywhere unless you spend money. So it's the kind of the classic bait and switch kind of strategy. But TikTok in recent times have, you know, changed the, 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 the way things are, are happening. And TikTok is a critical part of music promotion right now, even from an industry stand, standpoint. What is your opinion there? Oh, yeah. TikTok is making everybody else change their tune. That's, that's a great point. I'm on TikTok and I saw the growth. Like I will put all of my content now. I put it on TikTok first. And uh, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. It gets their algorithm, shares it to more people. Uh, and it doesn't really discriminate. You you can uh, you can post your stuff on TikTok with no hashtags at all, and it still gets sent out. If you try to do that with Facebook or Instagram, you're going to get a goose egg. You, nobody's going to see your stuff. They won't show it to anybody. I am so mad about with uh, Facebook. The gatekeeping is horrible. I have, um, to this day, I have over 13,000 followers on my Facebook uh, page, my fan page. But Facebook, when they, before you were right, it was organic and uh, you know, it was showing it. But after I worked so hard to get those 13,000 people, they changed the algorithm and Facebook doesn't even, does even show it to 10 people. I make a post and I read, I read uh, Facebook ads to get some of those followers. So you're telling me, Facebook, I, I spend money with you. I get all these, these followers like you asked me to. But now I did the hard work to get these followers. And when I post something for free on my platform, you show it to 10 people. That's, that is infuriating. That is so frustrating. But when TikTok came around, all of a sudden, Facebook, oh, please come back. Please, you know, we're going to show it to more people. Uh, don't worry about it. I just posted on TikTok. And Facebook and Instagram really hate it when you repurpose your TikTok. You can, or TikTok, you can download your TikTok and you can uh, repost it elsewhere. But they put the watermark, the TikTok watermark on the video. Facebook hates that watermark. Instagram hates their watermark. But you know what? I leave it on there. And guess what? They, they have no choice because they have to compete with TikTok now. So even there's TikTok watermark, I repost it to uh, Instagram and they have to give me uh, the views because they're trying to compete with TikTok. They hate mm -hmm. it. It's, it's great. It's great. Uh, and that because they're competing, even YouTube, YouTube started doing YouTube shorts. Why? Because TikTok gave them competition. And they, they, they hate it. Everybody hates it when you repost their TikTok video with the TikTok watermark. But I don't care. Yeah. Because they before, they were treating independent artists badly. They, they severely ratchet down your views to nothing. So it's like, oh, we don't care about you. We're just, you know, you're just a small guy. 
even if you have a lot of followers, if you have over 10,000 followers on Instagram, everybody complains about the decrease in the views that they get organically. But TikTok has changed it. TikTok has, has changed it. I love it. For the first time, Instagram offered to pay me for my views this year. And I think it's because of TikTok. They're like, man, we have to compete. So now I have uh, over 5,000 followers on Instagram. And uh, I believe they also severely impact how many followers I get. Because organically, I grew my stuff to 500 followers. But all of a sudden, I, it's hard to get new followers. So TikTok also helping me get more followers. And Instagram respects me enough to pay me for my content. So, hey, got to love it. All right. Tell us about NFTs. Okay. So, NFTs is the new kid on the block in the digital uh, economy. So, NFT is, to make it simply, if I can tell you in one sentence, that NFT is the ability to take what you do, uh, whether you're a uh, you're a short film creator or a musician or you make comic books. If you have a digital item, like a digital IP, you can turn it into a cryptocurrency token. You can turn it into one token. But once you turn it into a cryptocurrency token, your art, your product becomes a asset that has value in the marketplace. This has never been done before. So I can turn a CD, a musical album, or just a single, like one song. If I, if I uh, take the MP3 file and, and take that MP3 file and upload it to a site like uh, rarible.com, the, the blockchain, the cryptocurrency blockchain, files that file as an asset on the blockchain that can can never be duplicated or copied. It becomes unique. Now that gives it a value very much like a Mona Lisa painting. There's only one Mona Lisa painting. And that Mona Lisa painting can never be duplicated. People can try to duplicate it, but if you have proof that this is the original Mona Lisa painting, People will pay you millions of dollars for that. So people have an auction for the Mona Lisa painting. But now an NFT is like a digital Mona Lisa painting that people can bid on just like that. They can have You can have an auction. So let's say uh, I make an NFT of this picture here of me talking to you. I take a snapshot and I put, and I say, this is, this is my, this is proof that I did an interview with Dennis. And this is the only picture that ever in existence of me. I say to my fans, if you want this proof that I did this interview today, no other picture. I put this out. I can make it digital. I can put it on the blockchain. And I can put it for sale on the cryptocurrency market. You can only get this one. Now, Somebody really thinks it's valuable, say, hey, I'll bid $100 for that. 
The other person says, no, I want it. It's the only one. I'll bid $200 for it. No, I want it. Some other guy, $1,000. No, no, no. I want it. $10,000. And the other, other four guys, oh, I can't beat that. Okay, sold $10,000. Boom. You get that money as an artist immediately. Immediately. It's as soon as the, the hammer goes down, sold, the money transfers from that person's cryptocurrency wallet. It goes through the platform. There's a, something called the transaction fee that happens. Well, a fraction of the, the cryptocurrency goes to the platform. And then the lion's share of the money goes instantly into your cryptocurrency wallet. Now, imagine doing that with the album. Let's say uh, I, I make an album. Even one of my old albums, I've done it with an old record. Okay, here's a copy of the record, digital copy. You know, it's only one copy. Who wants it? We just did this. I did a collaboration with myself. Um, there's another gentleman called Yoshi Labs Music. And we had a hip-hop dancer, a b-boy. He did a dance to the, the, the record. And we, that made a visual art piece. So I played saxophone. The other guy produced the record. He did the vocals. And we have this guy doing a dance. Really nice piece of work. We put it, it's only one copy of this, this album. Uh, the name of the album, well, it's just one song. It's called Greatest That Be Me. We put it up on auction for three days. It sold for uh, 400 Tezos, which is a cryptocurrency. That's the equivalent now of about $600 US. We split the money three ways and we, we were so happy. That's never been able to be done for independent artists. We can take our music and put it together in an art form, give it directly to our fans or the public or the customer and get paid directly from them with no middleman. The record companies hate it. Mm -hmm. They hate it. They don't want, let alone, they don't want their, their major label artists finding out about this. They don't want independent artists finding out about this because we won't need them anymore. <laughs> we won't need them anymore. So that's that's what an NFT is right there yeah. in, in a nutshell. So it basically is what we call disintermediation because it gets rid of the middlemen. Right. Which would be the marketing company, the record company, the distributor, all of that. And so artists and creatives have a direct link with their fans and, and potential customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a game changer. It really is. Um, you have to be, you have to educate yourself on how to use uh, cryptocurrency and how NFT marketplaces work. Uh, it's really important that you as an entrepreneur uh, whether that be a music artist or a painter or whatever you're selling, you have to know the ins and outs of how to use the NFT marketplaces uh, because your existing fan base, your existing customer base, uh, since this is so new, 
they may not understand how to interact with it. But so it's going to be your responsibility as an entrepreneur to teach them how it works and how it can benefit them. Because once again, an NFT has value. An NFT, let's say I, you know, I sold the, the record for two Bitcoin. So two Bitcoin, one Bitcoin right now is around $20,000. So I sell the record for two Bitcoin. That one record, that one copy of the record is worth $40,000. So you holding, the person who bought that has something that has a value of $40,000. And if someone wants to buy it from them, they have to buy that person's asking price. So that person who bought it for that, he understands this has value. If I sell it for any less than $40,000, I lose money. So anybody that comes to me and tries to offer me a price less than this, I don't have time for them. But just like the example of the bidder, now that person may be able to sell that same album that they bought for two times, three times the value. Somebody is willing to pay it. Oh, so, so you can. So what about the person who bought the album and decides that they'll keep it and they won't sell it to make a profit? Is that, is, is what, what how, how does that work out? It works out exactly how you say. They just keep it. There's a lot of people uh, in the NFT market. That's exactly what they do. They'll they'll keep it uh, and they won't sell it. And people will try to bid on it and they just reject the bid. They say, no, I don't want to sell. And what that does, that adds more value to your art. That makes you feel good. as a, That makes me feel good as an artist if someone says, hey, I got it. I know I can sell it for a profit, but I want to keep it. And then other people try and take it. It just raises the value. It yeah. makes it more. Absolutely. There was a, there was a guy, uh, he bought something for like, uh, he originally bought the piece of art for $100. And uh, it made the news on social media because somebody offered him $400,000 for that one piece of art. Wow, wow. All right, uh, Shadow, great having you on the show. It was really interesting and all the, be all the best in, in your future career. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review and even drop us a comment if something really stood out to you.